Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, we are joined by Wes Kramer, president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. As president, Wes leads over 30,000 employees globally and is responsible for a broad portfolio of air and missile defense systems. Previously, Wes served in the U.S. Air Force as a weapons systems officer, flying more than 90 combat sorties in Iraq and Bosnia. We discussed the impact of digital transformation on the defense industry, COVID-19, and the importance of improved education for the future of STEM. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Wes, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Couldn't be happier to have you on Unpacking Impact today. So let's just kick it off and try to set the stage. You know, your business is working to transform inside and out. Can you talk about the digital transformation journey, what that means, and sort of the impact of these new transformational tools and what that impact is on the defense industry? Glad to be with you today. And, you know, I think that digital transformation or digital technologies is one of the most interesting things that's happening. And, you know, this isn't completely new. Certainly, we've had digital models. We do a lot of simulations, and this is something that's been going on for many years. But what we've seen most recently is a real acceleration, not only in the technology, but also in the pull function from our DOD customers is that because of the threat that we face, uh, especially from places like China, we really have to go faster. And, you know, the defense acquisition process has not been known as being the fastest process on the planet. And now we have a real driving kind of threat that is forcing all of industry, along with DOD, to really look at ways to not only streamline contracting mechanisms and stuff, but for the actual product development to be able to go faster. And I think that's the underpinnings of what really digital thread or digital transformation is all about. What's the impact of being able to go faster? Is primarily a reduction of cost or is it an ability to get the technology out to market faster that can impact a certain outcome? Yeah, it's actually both, right? And and in some ways, if you do something faster, by definition, it's going to be cheaper or have a, uh, you know, a faster development cycle. But, you know, if we look at the early parts of development, if you can eliminate cycles of learning, so if we can go all the way down to the very basic levels of design, you know, many things that in the past, a circuit card or an ASIC circuit, you had to go through multiple iterations of a design to get something that would actually work. But what we're seeing is the fidelity of the tools, the design tools is so much better now, and we can actually, you know, do a first pass success. We also have the ability with things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to link those models together. And what's really exciting is that when you combine that with additive manufacturing or 3D printing, as it's sometimes referred to, is, you know, the concept then now is that you could design something totally in a virtual environment. You could essentially model it in an operationally representative scenario, and then you could essentially hit print and print something. And you could meanwhile be 
testing it in a virtual environment. And, you know, when you look at how long those timelines take on DoD programs, there's an incredible opportunity here to go faster. The second part of that is the ability to do what we call PQDI, pre-planned um, product improvements. And so you think about, you know, I heard the example the other day of a rocket motor. Is it? It's typically about a 10-year cycle to make a modification or to qualify a new rocket motor. You know, what if we could make modifications in just a year or two or a fraction of that time and could continually upgrade capabilities in actual hardware, not just software? And those are the kinds of things that make it exciting, but also make it incredibly relevant to our customers around the world. Can you double click a little bit about how artificial intelligence and machine learning is impacting some of the things you just mentioned? Maybe you give us a little case study on somewhere that AI is particularly impactful for your business or a particular product. You know, one of the products that, that we build, it has to be able to pick out a, you know, tell the difference between like a wheeled vehicle and a track vehicle and be able to do that through the weather. And so we used artificial intelligence and machine learning for this to, you know, fly many different trajectories against various target sets and essentially create a learning algorithm so that it can operate on the fly and it can respond to a dynamic environment and be able to, you know, go exactly with what the pilot asks it to do. So, you know, that's just a simple example of how we're applying the technology to what we do. Wes, can I ask you, you know, digital transformation isn't really a new concept. What, in your view, is the big change here? What's, what's essentially new and is, is it sustainable? Actually, I, I think it's more than sustainable. I think what's really new is that on so many different fronts, um, the fidelity of these models is getting much better. I mean, you know, we look at like what we call the FTM 44 mission here a few months ago where we shot down an ICBM with an SM3 2A missile. If you went and looked at the modeling of that, you would see that essentially the flight trajectory and everything came out exactly online with what we had predicted in the models. And so that means the fidelity is just getting so much better. You don't have to do tens or hundreds of tests. You can just do a couple of tests to kind of anchor your model. So one is the fidelity of the models. The other thing, and I think this has been a big transformation that's been driven a lot by artificial intelligence and machine learning, is the concept of being able to take disparate data and essentially rationalize it and learn from it, right? We used to think that everything had to be in a relational database, and then it all had to be formatted and be able to do that. What the artificial intelligence algorithms have done is allowed us to be able to take data from all different formats, from all different types of databases, and essentially make sense out of that data and be able to use it. So now if you apply that to our industry and to defense, what that allows you to do is now to connect models together. So we can connect a mechanical model to a thermal model, to a performance model, to a cost model, right? And when you start doing all of those things together, that's really the power of this. And I think we're just scratching the surface. All of those things that I just talked about, you know, are actually going to get better and they're going to get better at an exponential rate. And that's what we're seeing. 
So this brings me to my next question, because what you just did is exactly what we're trying to do in the show is unpack impact and understand some of these new technologies. Naveen smiling because, you know, this is this is this was Naveen's vision when we actually started this podcast. So thank you for that really interesting answer. I want to ask you, you know, if you're on the cutting edge, what kind of impact does this have on the policymaking process? And what is it, you know, where where are you seeing that? Yeah, so I think, Andrew, here's one of the areas that will be very interesting in the defense industry, as we see, is, you know, for decades, the concept has been man in the loop, right? We never deploy lethal force without having a man in the loop, somebody to push that fire button, make that final decision. And what we're seeing is we're moving to something called man on the loop, where, you know, you kind of set the conditions, and when those conditions occur, you know, it, it happens at the speed of light, decisions are made and they're, they're pre-programmed in. And what we're eventually looking at is would we ever get to a point of not having a person in the loop? And now when you think about that from a policy perspective, again, um, that's not something that I'm going to decide or the defense industry is going to decide. I mean, these are things that are really, you know, national security and policy issues that will be set by DOD, Congress, and, you know, maybe even international standards on things like that. So the technology is going to force us to address policy questions like that. And is that going to be addressed in Congress? It Will it be addressed at DOD, a little bit of both? How, how is that going to work? Because, I mean, you really are on a new frontier here. And, you know, we, we do know that it's hard for policymakers sometimes to keep up with the innovations that are going on in the private sector. And this is another reason why Naveen and I wanted to do this show is because, you know, all of this technology, all of this innovation is having an impact on how policymakers react and deal with these things. So how, how do you see that equation for you guys? Well, I think we can draw, Andrew, a real parallel here to what's going on in cyberspace right now, right? We've got the cyber issues, we've got cyber attacks, and, you know, it's a fundamental thing. At, at what point does a cyber attack become an act of war? At what point do you retaliate? And do you retaliate in kind or do you retaliate with a, a bigger force kind of thing? So I think we see a lot of parallels in that. You know, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think it's kind of all of what you said. I think that Congress will play a role in that. The Department of Defense will play a role in that. You know, there may even be standards along the lines of, you know, of how warfare is governed, like with the Geneva Convention, right? So I, I think there's, this is an area that's very interesting. It's a lot to be explored. It was interesting. One of our customers put it to me this way, he said, Wes, you know, I think the job of industry is to come up with what's possible and then, you know, the using community, the politicians and the war fighters are going to have to then decide what to implement. Um, so I think that's what we're looking at is what's in the realm of the possible and how do we actually bring that to a point and find that middle ground or find that what's acceptable because, you know, speed becomes the essence of uh, that battlefield advantage, right? It's that the Oda loop, right? The decision, who makes the decision fastest? And it's always going to come down to now, it's not about the human, it's about the machines and the computers and the processing power to be able to take huge amounts of data, transform that into information to make 
split-second intelligent decisions that eventually could be life-and-death kinds of decisions. Yeah, and Wes, you bring up some very interesting points that we'll probably be wrestling with for at least another decade because you've seen how hard it is for regulators just to regulate who's responsible in a self-driving car accident. Now we're talking about warfare. This is exponentially more important as we understand it has all sorts of diplomatic implications, not just a... That's a really good point. Yeah. One interesting thing on that is I remember, you know, there was a program back in kind of the the mid-90s that was called UCAV, the Unmanned Combat Air Vehicle. And at that point in time, we were talking about, would we ever arm an unmanned vehicle? Well, you know, we're, we're well past that now, right? And so these things are a natural evolution of technology. And as technology advances, um, then that forces policy to update, to figure out how to manage that technology and how to use and employ it. So, I, you know, we can draw a lot of parallels here, but I think what we're talking about and kind of unpacking today is, you know, what do we see in the future? What's coming next? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I wanted to save this question for the end, Andrew, because, you know, I wanted to ask it, which is, you know, we're living in an interesting time where reality and science fiction are one. And, you know, we've all seen The Terminator. We've all seen a lot of fun science fiction movies. But now we're at the point where a lot of that stuff or some of those things are possible. What do you say to folks that that might say, hey, this is the dystopian future that we're all hoping to avoid. And how do you regulate artificial intelligence, whether it's self-regulated within the companies or regulated by the government? So we don't have a dystopian future where the machinery and the weaponry are making decisions that we may not agree with in retrospect. You know, that's a really tough one. A really tough one. I understand that. A really tough one. But I, I do think there are some important guideposts here, right? Is that we still have to look at doing things that are morally and ethically right. And and I think that, you know, there's values in in companies and whether it's a defense company or a technology company. And, you know, we talk a lot about ethics in business. And, you know, there's a lot of courses now in college in ethics and software, ethics and artificial intelligence. I mean, that's a topic that is becoming to the forefront. And I think the great thing is, is that you know, we're taking this on early. It's it's college courses. Our, our young, brilliant engineers that are, are taking those courses while they're there and they're thinking about that as they're being given their education. And, and I think we have to make sure we stay in touch with that. You know, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to say that, you know, we do what's morally and ethically right. Speaking of what's right, you know, I wanted to ask you a question about what, what's been the impact of the pandemic on, you know, Raytheon Technologies and on the defense industry in your view as a whole? Yeah, you know, on one hand, it's been an incredibly challenging year, right? We literally went from overnight from, you know, 180,000 employees coming in, working every day to overnight, 50% of those worked from home. And that's pretty much what we've been operating at, about 50% of our employees between factories, classified work, different things that can't be done at home have been operating. I think that what we've learned from this is that, you know, we probably don't need to do as much travel as we did in the past. There are a lot of things that we can use technology. You know, we can do inspections of parts virtually. We don't have to fly somebody to a vendor to go accept parts. 
we've learned that a lot of meetings can be done virtually. I want to stop you there for a second. So you can actually inspect parts that go into sensitive systems virtually? Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, say a mechanical part, right? You can you can put it against a template and compare it. We can look at test results. And, and I think that, you know, Andrew, you bring up a really good point here. Because when we talk about digital technology and design, one of the biggest changes is going to be how industry and government interacts. Right now, we do, you know, a waterfall or cascading kind of effect where we do all this design work and then we create thousands of PowerPoint slides and a hardware representation and then we test it and we go prove it, right? But in a digital environment, the proof is the model itself. And so it's going to have to be more collaborative, right? We're going to have to be every single day we have an agreed upon model. And I'll give you an example of one of our programs today. We actually, the design updates to the software uh, from our vendors are compiled every single night. And then this weapon flies 6 million miles every single night in a virtual environment. And it's evaluated for survivability, other parameters. And in the morning, um, not only our engineers, but our government customers have full access to that same data. And the idea here in a digital environment is that it's not your artifact isn't a bunch of PowerPoint slides and a bunch of test results. Your artifact is this series of models from the cost model to the performance model to the mechanical model that all of those together, that's the deliverable. And so when you think about that, that starts to become a little bit mind bending of how that's going to change how we contract, how we sell something off, and how our customers buy. So, so Wes, you've just told us something truly revolutionary. It seems like with this technology, the defense industry and the defense community might be moving a little bit away from PowerPoint slides. Is that <laughs> actually true? You know, absolutely. And one of the things that I'm trying to get to, I'll just give you an example in my staff meetings is I'm trying to get away from PowerPoint slides and say, when I look at the health of my organization and how we're performing, I just want to see the real-time dashboards of quality, of productivity, of backlog, of you know bill of materials uh, um, status, is I want to see the real-time data on that, not a PowerPoint presentation of summarized data. And, and so we're trying to drive that in our company, too, is get away from PowerPoint and let's look at real-time data. Let's look at trend lines and let's you know focus on those things. It's interesting to hear about how you guys are dealing with the pandemic and using cutting-edge technology to deal with people not working in the office anymore. I'm curious, specifically within defense, because defense is a very broad word, or other areas, what industries and sectors do you think are going to benefit from the new normal that we're in right now? And what areas do you think might lag? I actually, I'll start with the latter first. The area that I worry about almost the most on lagging is the contracting, right? We often see that at the end of the day, we can talk about all these things, but at the end of the day, we sign a contract and we adhere to the terms of that contract. And so I think what has to change is the contracting mechanisms of how we do this. Because you think about all the things that are, we call C drills, a contract deliverable line item. 
you know, those are all written around that waterfall technique of the PowerPoint slides, of the test results, of all the things that we just said are going to go away in a digital design environment. And so getting wrapped around that, I mean, we already went through this once with, you know, software engineering or DevSecOps, right? We went from the standard waterfall of, you know, I do one build of a software, I test that, I deliver the results, I do build two kind of thing to this iterative or continuous build. And one of the biggest challenges we had in that was getting the contracts written around a new method of doing software development of the DevSecOps. And now you're kind of doing that on steroids. You're taking the entire development process quality, right? We're not going to inspect quality. And, and this becomes very true when you talk about additive manufacturing of when you 3D print a complex part, you can't inspect quality in at the end. You have integrated features that are completely internal that may even be hard to x-ray or anything else. So you actually have to make sure that you have incredible process control of the actual you know, laser that's taking the powder and building it into, you know, whatever that part is. And so you think about how this affects every single aspect of what we do. And somewhere there used to be a contract line item that said how we were going to do that and what the deliverable was. And those are all going to get appended in order for us to truly take advantage of everything that digital design has to offer. Wes, I wanted to ask you, you know, your business, your industry has traditionally been about a couple core things. One is, you know, high technology, high quality, great solutions. Another has been, you know, a lot of your business is based on relationships and building and sustaining those relationships. How are you addressing COVID and vaccinations in your efforts to bring people back to the office? Or are you offering flexible work arrangements? What's what's that going to be like for Raytheon? Great question. And I, I think this is another area where we've really learned during the pandemic is that we've learned that we as an employer need to be more flexible. We need to offer people more ways to work from home. You know, some jobs obviously you know, don't, don't have a choice, but there are a lot of things where people can work from home. We are looking at more of a hybrid model of where certainly we will have kind of, I'll say three groups, you know, we'll have the people that come in every day, we'll have the people that largely work remote, maybe come in once in a while, and then we'll have that group in the middle that comes in on some regular schedule, a couple days a week. But think about what this offers us in terms of, you know, of, of being able to streamline our infrastructure, right? I could have two organizations that essentially share the same office space and they just deconflict which days of the week they come in. So we think that, you know, this can offer, you know, in the neighborhood of a 20% reduction in our overall office space. And when you start thinking about what that means to be able to, you know, lower our rates, to make us more affordable, to lower the price of things. So there, I think there's a lot of things that we're learning out of this that are positive. I also think of flexible work schedules. You know, one of the examples I use is that, you know, in working from home, we had a lot of, you know, parents or, or single parents that were homeschooling and doing all of that. And so, you know, literally we would see that they're logging onto the network or making phone calls to Europe or something, you know, really early in the morning. They kind of, you know, have to spend time with the kids during the day and then making calls to Asia and do an email late in the evening. Well, if I asked somebody to sign up to a schedule like that, that would be, you know, that would be a lot to ask. I probably wouldn't get many volunteers, but yet 
that becomes for that person having the flexibility to be able to do that allowed those people to do what they needed to do for their family and still be successful in their job. And at the end of the day, if the body of work gets done, you know, should I care so much about where they're sitting and that it's happening between the hours of eight and five? And so I think there's a lot of learning that really came out of this, uh, certainly for our company, and I would suspect a lot had the same experience. Wes, I wanted to switch gears just for a second and ask a question that speaks not to only your experience in the defense industry, but actually as a veteran of the United States Air Force. First off, thanks for your service. I understand that you serve both in Iraq and in Bosnia. Putting that hat on or that flight suit on, as the analogy may be, how does that person's job change today relative to when you were serving in the theater of war? Like, what are they dealing with? What what kind of information are they seeing on their screens or in their ears to help them make better decisions, whether it be from AI or things having, happening automatically? Now, give us a sense of what that's like, because I think that's a very unique perspective that you bring to the table. Absolutely. And, and it's probably best told by something that just happened here a couple of years ago. In Raytheon, we we sponsor a trophy called the Raytheon Trophy, and it's the it goes to the top fighter squadron in the Air Force every year. So the Air Force um, selects that and then we sponsor trophy. And, and I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go travel to a squadron and it, it was a it was an F-15E squadron. So the, the plane that I flew and present this award and, and we were there for a couple of days. And I have to tell you that, you know, talking to the young men and women who wear the flight suit today and to give you an idea of how old I am, you know, one of the pilots there was the you know, I flew with his father, so it you know it definitely made me feel old. <laughs> but but what I really what struck me is you know how much that plane because I'm very familiar with that has changed and how much more information and data is being presented to that air crew, and and not only that the complexity of the environment in which they operate, and you know for example the rules of engagement of, you know, our men and women do everything they can, including calling off missions and stuff if they think there's a chance of collateral damage or or hurting civilians. And um, I think that, you know, it's absolutely incredible what they do. And and I'm in admiration of all of our warfighters out there. They're operating in an incredibly complex environment that is just saturated with data and information. And oh, by the way, it's also being watched. Everything's being recorded. There's a predator or something overhead taking video of that. And then, you know, people are reviewing that after the fact. And so what what impressed me most is just the sheer amount of data, but at the end, the professionalism of of every single one of our warfighters. And now, according to 60 Minutes, some of your former colleagues in the Air Force are dealing with UFOs or UAPs or whatever they call them. And that must be something that the defense industry is thinking about, too. Yeah, you know... I don't know. I, I re- honestly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I don't have any, you know, experience with that. I, I, I kind of find it kind of fascinating, but it, I guess yeah. it's interesting to see how this unfolds. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. Switching gears a little bit, you know, what are some of the industries you think are going to really come out, and sectors you're going to come out of the reopening in the global economy and really succeed? And what are some of the ones that you think you know may lag? Yeah, well, the one I wouldn't want to be in is commercial real estate for sure. <laughs> yeah. Know, 
And and truly, I mean, I think that you know uh, companies are reevaluating areas on that. I think that you know clearly the the technology kinds of things, the capability to deliver things remotely. You know, one thing we talked about. Um, was, you know, our ability to inspect things or to accept things remotely. We have a system that essentially is a two-way communication, right? It's a pair of glasses that you can wear and you can see what the other person's seeing and you can transmit stuff to them. So you can virtually be there. And whether that's to go inspect a part at one of our suppliers or whether it's to, you know, with a field technician at one of our deployed locations around the world, instead of having to send an engineer or subject matter expert, we can, you know, have them virtually be there with the technician that's on site and offer their expertise to conduct a repair, to do a test, to troubleshoot or diagnose something. I mean, those kinds of things, I think that that speed the way in which we deliver technology around the world are going to be the, the companies that will emerge stronger from this. What about STEM? STEM skills are essential in your line of work. And how do you see the importance of STEM education and especially in its national security implications? Yeah, this is, you know, Andrew, this is something I think about every day. And we as a company make STEM one of our number one priorities. Right now in Raytheon Technologies, we have 60,000 engineers and just, you know, feeding that pipeline alone. And we're just one company. And everything is becoming more technical. You know, we used to think that we had competition from other defense contractors for our technical talent, but we lose talent to Google, to Amazon, to, you know, Microsoft, to companies like that. I mean, the ability of companies to attract the best and brightest talent is also a discriminator in this environment that we're in today. We're, we're all looking for the best and brightest. And I tell you that when I talk to young kids, the number one thing I do is go, you know, if you have any interest in science, technology, engineering, or math, stick it out, go to college, get a degree in STEM. But I'll give you an interesting statistic that I think is, is something that we have to address as a nation, is that in most states, the high school curriculum only requires three years of math. And most kids take that freshman, sophomore, junior year. And I can tell you for a fact, it doesn't matter how smart you are, if you take a year off of taking math and then go into college and want to start with calculus or an engineering program, you're going to be behind and it's going to be discouraging. And so um, there are some states that have started to change this, but I'll tell you one of the things I advocate for is I think it should be the curriculum in every state is that you're required to take four years of math and it doesn't have to be calculus, but if you take four years of math, at least you're going to be in a position that when you go to college, if you want to get a technical degree, you won't be in a remedial class and you won't be starting there saying, I can't graduate in four years because I'm behind on that. So I think there's simple things like that that we can do. One of our biggest programs is we take engineers and volunteer in the local communities and we do rocketry contests. We do building Galileo telescopes, you know, anything to get kids interested in math and what you know, data shows us is that where kids lose interest is in junior high. So you have to go address this at the middle school level. You have to get middle school students interested in science and technology and understanding that that's the way our world is headed. And, you know, that that's a way for job security and financial security 
is to get involved in the science, technology, engineering, and math curriculums. Well, Andrew, maybe we can help the world a bit and connect uh, Wes with our our previous guest, Dean Kamen. They can go fix STEM together. <laughs> Absolutely. Be a great one-two punch. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough one too, right? Because every kid in the country has an iPhone and relies on technology for what they do. But yet the number of people going into, into the STEM career fields is going down. And, and I think the other area we really have to target is our underrepresented populations, getting more diversity into STEM. I mean, it truly is the way of the future. And anything that we can do to get underrepresented populations and to get more diversity into the STEM curriculums will absolutely serve bonuses many years down the road. That's the way we view it. It's not just about recruiting people for Raytheon. It's about this is a national security issue in our country is that we need to continue to encourage kids from all backgrounds to study and to go into the, the STEM curriculums. Wes, could you elaborate that a little bit further in terms of, I think you made such a great point with, which is that falling behind in STEM education is a national security issue. Can you just flush that out for us a little bit? Well, I think it's kind of, it kind of summarizes all the things we've talked about on this podcast, right? As we talked about that, whether it's artificial intelligence or digital design, is that every aspect of my business is becoming more digital every single day. And I'm facing competition from not just, you know, defense contractors, but from all industries. And so when we think about that and we look at it and bring it up to the national level, I mean, we are in a, you know, a power struggle or a competition here, especially with something, someone like China. And it's on all fronts. It's on economic, it's on military, and it's certainly on technology. And, you know, the direction that we're headed and, and our numbers of, of kids that go into STEM curriculums and the output of the engineers and scientists and technologists is not where we need it to be. And emerging fields like cyber technology, right? We're just now getting curriculums around cyber technology. There's areas like that that we you know, I do believe it is a national security issue that we have to get more people involved in this, or we will be outpaced by other countries. Wes, we like to close by asking our guests, you know, if there's anything that gives them optimism for the future. And and I think you've given us a lot to think about in this podcast, but specifically, you know, is there something that gives you optimism going forward? Yeah, you know, there's actually a lot of things that give me optimism, but I think the one thing that we always know is that I think our future is bright. When I, you know, nothing gives me more energy than to go out and get briefed by one of our young engineers is I'm always impressed. Um, despite the challenges we talked about, about numbers in STEM, I have to say that the quality of the students that we see coming out of engineering schools today is absolutely phenomenal. And what these kids do is amazing. In fact, you know, my son just uh, graduated from college with a degree in electrical engineering on Sunday. And what he does and what he knows already compared to when I got my degree, it's absolutely amazing. And his willingness to take on challenges, you know, our, our kids nowadays in the video game era, they're fearless, right? They're willing to try anything because they just hit reset. They're not 
They're not intimidated by anything. And I think those are the things that give me optimism. And it's going to be so critical as we move forward on this journey of digital engineering. Well, congratulations to your son. Congratulations to you. Good to know that we're going to have another engineer in our society working for us, for the United States and all of its different industries and possibilities that he can get into. So thank you for this terrific podcast, Wes. We really appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to be a lot smarter for hearing your insights. Well, thank you for your time today. This was a great conversation. Thanks a lot, Wes. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 